0: Well good evening. If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of Exodus. Exodus should be easy for you to find, not just because we've been in it, but it's only the second book of the Bible. You can just open it up and start to turn the pages and find it. This will be the last time, for this present time, that we will be in the book of Exodus in the evenings. We're going to be finishing off chapter 20 this evening. And in weeks to come we are going to collectively, as a staff, turn to the book of Galatians. And so we'll be going through Paul's great letter to the Galatians, uh, all four of us on the staff, uh, preaching in turn, trying to give us some uh, regularity and steadiness in a book, taking our turns. Um, I'll have to make sure that I assign all of the difficult passages to others. Um, Perhaps I can have Kurt wrestle with those um, as a... Training exercise, but um, but for this evening we are in Exodus chapter twenty. This is the end of the first half of Exodus, and it is perhaps the epilogue to the Ten Commandments. We have spent time and we have gone through the Ten Commandments together, and our text this evening is Exodus chapter twenty, verses eighteen through twenty six. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Exodus chapter 20, beginning at verse 18. Now when all of the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing on it. Let's pray. O Lord, we ask that you would open up your word to us that especially where it does not seem immediately clear to us, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate our minds and our hearts, that as we study your word, we would see your majesty, your glory, and your greatness. Help us, O Lord, to worship you aright. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. One of the challenges of being a child, whether you are one now, or you remember when you used to be, is fear. Because I think it is often the case that children have an improper fear of things that are not to be feared. There are children who will call their parents into the room at night and have them check under the bed for monsters. Or... That there might be an animal in the closet or some other such fanciful thing that they're afraid of and there's no way that they could possibly go to sleep they're so afraid. And yet, at the same time, these same children will run around the house with scissors. They'll see or find a handgun in the house and be curious about it and want to touch it and play with it instead of staying far from it. And so, as parents, we have to store those things away. We keep scissors at heights they can't reach. We lock away guns in gun safes. Because while they have an improper fear of things that are not to be feared, they lack a proper fear of things that are to be respected and to be kept at a little bit of a distance. What that tells us here is that fear, at least all fear, is not bad. We want our children to have a fear of traffic and not to dart out in front of cars. We want them to have a fear of knives and sharp objects. We want them to have a fear of chemicals and other things. There are things that we must treat with respect and not treat lackadaisically. And I think that's a picture of what we see here at the end of Exodus chapter 20. What we see here first and foremost is that there is an improper fear that has gripped the people of Israel. And yet Moses needs to not only dispel that improper fear, he needs to reinvigorate a proper fear in their hearts. And then finally... We see the result of a proper fear being found in the hearts of God's people. An improper fear, a proper fear, and then the result. Now, let's start then by looking at the improper fear that grips the people of Israel. You know the occasion for this passage here. We have spent many weeks. Building up to this point, the occasion, the context is the giving of the law. And we have spent ten sermons looking at each of God's ten great words. The giving of the Ten Commandments. And even preceding that, there was all of the spectacle and the thunder and the lightning that went with the giving of God's law. Everything that we have studied has led to this. Both. God calling Moses to take Israel out of Egypt, the ten plagues, the crossing through the Red Sea, the going and wandering in the wilderness, the giving of the law, all of that actually builds up to this, to the worship of God. That's what the Israelites were freed for. That's what you and I were made for. You may recall earlier in the book of Exodus that God's demand upon Pharaoh was, let my people go so they may worship me. That's what everything has built up to at this point. And now we see as Israel is around the mountain, there are sights and sounds that are causing fear in their hearts. There are thunderings. There are lightning flashes. There is the sound of the trumpet, the mountain itself is smoking, and they're struck with a fear. Now I think perhaps at first glance we may look at them and say, why such fear around the giving of the law? Because I think for us today in 21st century America, we have lost a sense of the majesty of the giving of law. Our politicians and lawmakers make law all the time. We know they make laws that they don't even read. Thousands of pages of laws that they simply pass. They don't know what's in it. We're told we can't know what's in it until we've already passed it. And this has become the day of our age. On the national level, on the state level, and on the local level, it is a constant proliferation of law. And so we have lost a sense of awe of majesty that comes around the giving of the law because God doesn't need to continue to build up His law. I remember back when I was an attorney, we would get each year a book called the Federal Register. And that was a book filled with all of the regulations around all of the laws of the land that were passed that year. Tens of thousands of pages of commentary and regulations on the law. But for God, God only needs the ten words. And then He begins to expand upon them, as we see in the rest of the Pentateuch. But they all sum up in the ten words. All of the laws of Israel bear on it. I commend to you Calvin's commentaries on the Pentateuch. Because what John Calvin does is, he takes the the books of the Pentateuch, and he divides them up, around the Ten Commandments. He takes all of the segments of the laws and he puts them under the great ten words. So for us, law is something that is constantly being produced. And quite frankly, it's boring. But not so with God. When God gives a law, it is majestic. It reflects His character and His holiness. And the reaction of the people is to be afraid. We see this here in the text. When the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, when they heard the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood afar off. Now, do you notice there how the text describes this to us? They were afraid and trembled. It's an extreme case of fear. It's something that is a bit of a controversy in the text. The way that that Hebrew works is, is that written Hebrew doesn't have vowels. It only has consonants. And there are two particular Hebrew words that are nearly identical. And so you have to have context to know whether the word is they saw or they feared. The only difference are the vowels that aren't included in the written text. And so, some translations will say the people saw and trembled. Most prominently, the New King James and the New American Standard. I think actually here, the ESV has it correct. That it is that they were were afraid and they trembled. The first translation of the Old Testament ever, the Septuagint into the Greek, translates it this way. They were afraid and they trembled. And so, what I want us to see here is... That there is great fear that grips them. They're not just afraid. Moses tells us that they also trembled. They were physically affected by their fear. They shook. It's almost like a sense of shock has taken over. I don't know if you have ever had the providential occasion to be on the scene of an accident, an automobile accident. And it doesn't even need to be an extreme accident. If you've ever been one of the first people on the scene of an accident and you see someone get out of their car, you will see that they may talk in normal tones. But if you look at their hands, they're shaking. They don't even know they're shaking. Because they're so taken by fear. It's gripped their brain. They can't think straight. They can't move straight. They have to be told by medical professionals to sit down to relax, to realize something greater is going on than they realize. And and that's what we're seeing here. The people are gripped by a fear of God. And that fear of God drives them from God. Do you see this? They actually flee God in verse 18. They stood far off. Now, we have to remember to go all the way back, one chapter... To chapter 19, if you look with me at chapter 19 and verse 17, Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. That is, they came as close to the mountain as they could physically come. But now, after having seen the lightning, heard the thunder, heard the voice of God, they are now afar off. They have moved away. They have moved a distance away from God. And so what that tells us, do not blunt this, is that they felt that they were safer being farther away from God. Now stop and think about that for a moment. Because I believe that when you and I focus on ourselves, this is how we think. We fear God. And we feel that we are safer farther from Him. We saw this morning from James that we are to confess our sins. And I fear one of the reasons we don't confess our sins is we feel that when we have sinned against God, the thing that we must do is run from God. We don't go to God and to His people and confess our sins. We run away. We want to hide. We want to be distant because we think that's where we're safe. This is an improper fear that has gripped Israel. They want to be distant from God, and this is irrational in the definition of that word. It makes no sense at all. The people's only hope is to be near God, is to be redeemed by God, is to be forgiven by God. They should be drawing as close as they can to God to find forgiveness and peace. And instead, they flee. Now this is also interesting because we know from the history of Israel that over and over and over again, God has preserved them. When they have nothing to eat, He provides food. When they have nothing to drink, He provides water. When they have enemies who attack them, He overcomes them. When they are weaponless and helpless... He parts the sea and drowns their enemies. They should know over and over again that God has preserved them. But it happens yet again. They forget and they're afraid. Now let me challenge you. Because that's, I think, often how we live our lives. We forget the hundreds of times that the Lord has preserved us. Preserved our lives, preserved our marriages, preserved our families, preserved our businesses, preserved our sanity. And when that new instance comes up, we treat it as if it's completely out of the blue, as if there's no context at all for it. And we'll never survive this difficulty. And we run from God. Do they honestly think, the people of Israel, that God will kill them now after he has preserved them and brought them to the mountain to worship him? That at this point God's going to say, I probably shouldn't have given you the manna. No, I should have let you die of thirst in the, in the wilderness. Now's my chance. I could be done with you. Now, what the people are driven to do by this fear is to desire a mediator. We see this in verse 19. They say to Moses, You speak to us. We can't have God speak to us, or else we'll die. Now, this is, I think, a classic case of doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Because God's desire was for Moses to be the mediator between him and his people. We see this over and over again in the first 19 chapters of Exodus. That that's why God called Moses and that's why God equipped Moses in that way. And so what that tells us is it is not enough just to do the right thing for the wrong reason. No. God wants us to do the right thing for the right reason. He wants our hearts. And if you think about it, What they're saying, again, is irrational. It makes no sense. They say, we can't hear God speak, otherwise we'll die. You want to say to the Israelites, you just heard God speak. Are you dead? You don't look dead to me. It looks like God spoke to you, and he spoke to you words of grace and of blessing. Why do you want God not to speak to us? And so... It is important for us as we think through our own lives, the lives of our family, the lives of fellow Christians that we are in communion with, to affirm the right thing in action, but yet to gently correct the thinking. In other words, to correct ourselves and others to be doing the right thing for the right reason. And Moses does this. We see it in verse 20. He says, Do not fear. God has come to test you. He wants to bring them back to sanity, to rationality, to an understanding of why they are doing what they are doing. Is that what we do in our lives? Do we make efforts to correct our thinking? Not just our actions but our thinking. Well that's an improper fear that we see that Israel has but Moses then pushes them on to a proper fear, a correct fear. And it starts with that reassurance we've just looked at in chapter 20. It starts with a reassurance, do not fear. And Moses has good grounds for doing this because God in his actions has been giving Israel reminders of his relationship to them. It's very interesting that as we look in verse 18, the people saw the flashes of lightning. Now this is not, dare I say, the ordinary word for lightning. Actually, the Hebrew word behind this is the word for flashes. And of lightning is added for context. And this is important because this word, flashes of lightning, occurs in Genesis chapter 15 And verse 17. You may be familiar with that passage. It's when God makes a covenant with Abraham. And it's when God appears before them as a smoking fire. When He reminds them that He is their God. When He tells them that the sacrifices that will be made will be His, not Abraham's. So when they heard this word, they should have thought back to Abraham. They should have thought back to the covenant that God made with Abraham. To the blessing that God had given to Abraham. That they were the descendants of Abraham. And that that's why in keeping his covenant, God had rescued them from Egypt. All of this should have come back to their mind. They shouldn't have been afraid. And then we hear about the trumpet. And I think in this context, we think of this blaring noise, maybe like a loud fire alarm. Have you ever been in a building when a fire alarm goes off and you can't hear yourself think and you want to get out of that building? Well, that's how fire alarms are designed, right? They don't want a fire alarm that you sit down and go, I like the sound of that. I think I'll listen for a bit. No, they want you to put your fingers in your ears and run to the door. That's the design of a fire alarm. But that's not the design of a trumpet. The trumpet here is not designed to drive them from the mountain. It's not some blaring, obnoxious noise that tells God's people, get away. Yes, it is loud. But the call of the trumpet is actually a sign to draw near. This is exactly what it was to do. Again, if we go back just to chapter 19 and verse 13... We are told, when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. They should have heard the trumpet and said, time to get near to God. God's calling us to himself. It has the effect, perhaps, you've had this occurrence, this is a bit dated, I don't know that that moms do this today. Today, I think they use texts and smartphones, but back in the day... When mom had lunch or dinner ready, she would get an instrument, usually in the old school way, a triangle with a piece of metal, and she would bang on that triangle and make that noise, and you heard that, it was eating time. And you ran home. That was a sign to come home. That's what the trumpet is here. It's a call to come home to blessing. To come home to being with God. And that is God's true intention here. It is to have a relationship with his people. And so, but in the context of this, there is a proper fear that we have of God. I think one of the worst phrases that rings in my ears is the big guy upstairs. I think I'd rather hear a four letter word than that. Not not that I want you going out and using that kind of language, especially you young people. But it's a flippancy with God. As if God is kind of like us. He's our buddy, our pal. He's just one of us, one of the guys. And God is most manifestly not that. He is holy. He is other than us. And Moses actually really highlights that. Do you see this odd construction in verse 20? Moses says, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Now stop and think about that. Moses says, don't fear, so you can fear. In one sense, it makes no sense at all. What's Moses doing about here? But... It's a specific kind of fear. He's saying, don't be afraid of bolts of lightning killing you. Don't be afraid of your enemies. Don't be afraid of others. But fear God. Stand in awe of God. Respect God. Now, there is a great difference here. The people of Israel are afraid of death. God wants them to be afraid of sin. And if you think that that is only applicable in the days of Moses thousands of years ago, let me introduce you to the COVID pandemic. In which people are more afraid of death than they are of abandoning the worship of God. More afraid of death than of their own sin and mistreating their neighbors. They would rather mock their neighbors, attack their neighbors, assault their neighbors than abandon a fear of sickness or death. That's who we are. It's built into our human frailty. And, And God wants to correct our thinking. The people of Israel were more concerned with their own safety and comfort than they were with their relationship with God. And can't we fall for that at times? That we are more concerned about our own comfort our own concerns, than about developing and cultivating our relationship with God. You see, a proper fear of God puts God in perspective. It places Him as the highest priority in our lives. Above comfort, above safety, above health, God is the all in all. And this Fear manifests itself, Moses says, in a test of Israel's obedience. God has come and has done this to test you. So on the one hand, God is impressing the law upon them. But on the other hand, He's also drawing them near to Himself. This fear of God should manifest itself in an understanding of who God is. That God is really the only place of blessing and safety. You, know, you can't talk about the fear of God without using the famous quote from C.S. Lewis. You remember from the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. When the children ask the question, is Aslan safe? And Mr. Beaver laughs and he says, of course he's not safe. But he's good. That's who God is. God is not safe. He's not, he doesn't exist for our safety. But He's good. And we need Him. Well, what's then the result of a proper fear of God? The result is that God gives to them a mediator. We see this in verse 21. That Moses draws near to the thick darkness where God is. That God meets them where they are. He knows they need a mediator and He provides it for them, And this, should again, shouldn't surprise us because that was God's plan all along. Because He knows the nature of His people. You don't need to express to God your weakness. Here's a newsflash. God already knows all of your weaknesses. He knows all of the challenges that come to you. He knows all of the besetting sins that you have. You don't need to inform Him. And then God goes on to remind the people of the relationship that He had with, has with them. In verse 22, the Lord said to Moses, You shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. And it's interesting that in the midst of a comment about God's transcendence, that God is different from us, that He speaks from heaven that God gives prescriptions for drawing near to Him. The fact that God is not like us, that He is other than us, that He is perfectly holy, does not put God at a distance from us. Because He draws near to us. And then it's interesting that we see here in verse 24, we see a designation of how to construct an altar we might ask ourselves, why does God bring this up here? You know, we've got the Ten Commandments, and that's wonderful and great, and then we've got the mountains smoking and lightning and all this other stuff, and now God's saying, when you make me an altar, do it this way. Why does He do that here? Well, what happens at the altar? The altar is a place of grace. Grace. The altar is the place where sacrifices are made. The altar is a reminder of God's provision for our sin, for our failure. That we can come near to God because God has provided for us. That we don't need to clean up our act. That we don't need to be perfect. That we don't need to put on a show for God because God has provided for us. It's a place of grace. But it's also a place of humility. Notice in verse 23, You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. What God is saying here is, you are not to fashion gods after your own thoughts. If I can put it this way bluntly, you're not smart enough to make up gods. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you need. I'm what you need, God says. And the truth really is we are better off without idols. And that's a truth that I think we neglect. We think that idols will help us. And now again, I don't expect that in your life, in your backyard, you've set up a totem pole or you have a, a furnace where you make a little uh, small idol of gold or silver and set it up next to your barbecue grill. That's not what we do. We fashion idols of other sorts. Idols of bank accounts. Of homes. Of work. Even a family. Anything that we are drawn to more readily than God. And so what God is telling us is, We need to abandon that, not to fashion gods according to our own thoughts. There's also even a sense of humility in which God tells them to build the altar. The altar is to be made of earth. And he says, if you make it of stones, don't fashion them. Don't work on them. Just use the rough rocks. Now why is that? It's because God doesn't need to be impressed by our work in building an altar. It's simply a simple place where we come and worship Him. And notice God's choice of place. We see that where we are to make this altar in every In verse 24, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you. And the language here is actually difficult to translate because really what it says is in every the place, in every specific place that I choose, that's where I will be found. God is there. And then there is this odd language, you shall Not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. And we wonder, what's going on here? And this is not the last time God will talk about this. God will spend a great deal of time later in the book of Exodus, and even in the following books, describing the priest's clothes, describing their undergarments, their garments, the the linens, and, and describing it in such a way that it's obvious that modesty is of a high priority to God. At first glance, we may think he doesn't want the priests to be ashamed, but I don't think that's what he's getting at here. Modesty is actually a polemic that God is making against pagans, because pagan worship was designed to be immodest. Pagan gods were fertility gods, and the reason that you built altars and temples to pagan gods was to gain power. You sacrifice to them so that you would have power. So that you would be in control. So that you would be able to have children. Your crops would grow. You would take the power from God and use it for yourself. And God is saying, that's not reality. You don't take power from me. No. I am the true and only God. Well... In conclusion, I want us to think about the fact that this text doesn't just speak to Moses and Aaron and the Israelites. It speaks to us as well. You can find it in the book of Hebrews, in the 12th chapter. We are told that our God is a consuming fire. But we're also told that God has made a better place in verse 22 of chapter 12. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in a festal gathering. This is after the author to Hebrews has described this very event in Exodus. He says that even Moses said, I tremble with fear. But he says to you, you've come to a better place. Because you have a better mediator. Your mediator is Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The principle is the same. Grace comes first and then service to the Lord and law. We are able to serve the Lord because we are the recipients of the grace that God has provided to us in Jesus. So you can serve the Lord with fear, with a healthy respect and awe for God and who He is. But you can also rejoice in the midst of that because of what Jesus has done. Let's pray.